next week, I think last Sunday, the event took place, the wedding of the British actress Kate Beckinsale in Beverly Hills, California, to the film director Len Wiseman. A magazine article in January this year explained that when they met on the set of the film Underworld, which Wiseman directed in which Beckinsale starred, it was love at first sight. And the article, which I read very interestingly, went on to comment. Okay, there was the little problem of her long-standing relationship with actor Michael Sheen, the father of their four-year-old daughter, Lily, but he was soon history. Brutal? Not at all, according to Kate. She explained that she couldn't help falling for Wiseman and that she had no choice but to leave Sheen. Another actor, Michael Douglas, when charged with adultery in his divorce proceedings in a previous relationship, pleaded diminished responsibility. He said, Sex is a wave which sweeps over me, the impulse that is, and when the urge comes, I am helpless every time. I have no particular issue with these particular people, but both of these cases highlight what is increasingly being promoted as a valid reason for committing adultery. That is, you can't help it. As David Sill puts it in his book on the Ten Commandments, love has become like measles. You contract the disease, but then you recover from it. And the worry for those who are married must surely be that one day you or your spouse might catch the disease again and then have no choice but to leave and start it with someone else. This we see in our society in the rise of what has been called serial polygamy. However, in that same January article, which wasn't a Christian magazine at all, entitled, the article was entitled, Should You Lose Yourself to Love Lunacy? And a psychologist by the wonderful name of Gladiana McMahon commented, We are very good at conning ourselves. We claim our emotions are impossible to resist, but that's just a cop-out. Yes, we can't stop our feelings, and they can be very strong. But although a lot of people feel that means you have to act on them, that's not true. You have a choice. And then she goes on, For example, you may have a strong desire to slap your unreasonable boss, but you don't succumb because it would be disastrous for your career. It's the same way with love. If your feelings make you act against your best interests, it's possible and advisable to ignore them. And then the article goes on to describe various case scenarios in which it may be for or against your best interest to ditch your relationship and start a new one. Now, I agree with the first point that all of us do have a choice. But I have some questions about how do you decide what is in your best interest? For example, a person may be in an unhappy marriage and may be attracted to someone who promises what seems to be, and may well be, a better relationship. Surely it would be in his or her best interest to leave and make a fresh start. Or think of the story we read in Genesis 39 in the Bible. Joseph, young, handsome slave, is propositioned by his master's wife. Surely it would be in his best interest to accept her offer and against his best interest to refuse. So, when she says, come to bed with me, why did he refuse? 
His answer, interestingly, would, was, it would be a breach of trust against his master, but more than that, notice the main reason why Joseph said no. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Joseph knew that sleeping with someone who was married to someone else was a sin against God. And so, against his best interests, he refused to repeat it office and finally ran from temptation and he ended up falsely convicted of rape, sentenced to an indefinite term in a prison in Egypt. Many generations later, Joseph's descendants, now the people of Israel, were given God's laws in written form in what we know as the Ten Commandments. And in the seventh of these commandments, written like the rest on Joseph's heart, God said, spoke all these words, you shall not commit adultery. My dictionary defines adultery as voluntary sexual intercourse between a married man and, or woman and a partner other than a legal spouse. Adultery technically can only be defined in terms of marriage. The marriage of two people into which a third party enters. Mrs. Potiphar was married to Mr. Potiphar and Joseph, had he agreed, would have been the third party in that relationship even though he wasn't married, which is why this subject is relevant to all of you who think, I'm not married, I can switch off, go to sleep for the next 30 minutes, stay with me. But what I want to emphasize is what the dictionary omits, and most people ignore, that there is another person in this equation whose involvement makes adultery a far more serious matter. Many, many generations after Joseph, after Moses, the Son of God, Jesus, issued a warning to those who break the marriage bond by adultery. And he said these words, words that I always speak at the end of marrying someone when I pronounce them husband and wife. I then say the words of Jesus, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is the joining together of two people by God. Adultery separates or tears apart what God has joined together. Hence the title I've chosen for today's message, What God Has Joined Together. Now, we don't have time to deal with the complex and contentious issue of divorce this evening. There's a message from the previous series and the Sermon on the Mount on it. And God willing, as we continue our series uh, in Mark's Gospel, when we get to chapter 10, we'll deal with this subject in depth. Rather, I want to look at adultery itself and I simply want to focus on four words connected with the subject, which I hope will be helpful to you. The first is foundational and relates to marriage itself. It's the word joined. Marriage is not a human invention, but as Jesus reminded his hearers, who should have known and known better, marriage is a divine institution given by God right at the beginning of creation. Theologians call it a creation ordinance. I mean God gave right at the beginning when he created man and woman, male and female. In marriage, a man and a woman, and gay marriages, which are again in the news this week, are strictly a contradiction in terms, become one flesh, male and female. And out of the two, God makes one. So Jesus says they are no longer two, but one. 
in marriage, that physical union, is expressed in sexual union. The joining together of two bodies. But it goes much deeper than that. There is a deeper union, a spiritual union, at the deepest level of personality of the spirit. Human beings alone, alone made in the image of God, possess the capacity to communicate with each other at the deepest level of relationship, and of course with God. It is the most intimate human relationship. In fact, the New Testament holds such a high view of this kind of marriage that the Apostle Paul compares this mystery, he calls it in Ephesians 5, he said it's like the relationship between Christ and his church. No, he's not talking about a physical relationship, he's talking about a deep, intimate, spiritual, one-to-one relationship. And marriage, however poor, or however good, is but a faint echo of that deepest and most intimate relationship. Marriage, then, is God's plan. And so when two people come together, God joins them together. They're joined together by God. Now, with this foundation, there are two implications that follow, at least two anyway. Let me mention two. The first is the importance of the body. Uh, Through the influence of Greek philosophy, there was a commonly held view in the first century uh, when Jesus and Paul and the apostles were around, which is still held in some Christian circles today, that the body is somehow inherently evil. It's a sort of encumbrance to the life of the spirit, which is a higher kind of life. And that's why, if you were here last year, when we looked at 1 Corinthians, you can uh, get again the tape or listen on the internet, uh, Christians in first century Corinth, because they believe this, thought, well, it's the spirit that matters. In fact, it doesn't matter what you do with the body. You can sleep around with prostitutes or commit incest. This is what they were doing. It doesn't really matter because God's only concerned with what is spiritual. But Paul challenges this head on. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, this is revolutionary stuff. He's saying your body is like the temple. In fact, the word used there is of the holiest place in the Old Testament. You know where the priest went in? That intimate, special place. God lives within you by His Holy Spirit. Your body is like a temple. So don't mess around with it. So the second implication is that if the body is a temple, then what you do with your body is important. There's a great danger in sexual immorality. Now, while there are still a few people around, less people around, who think the body is unimportant and focus on the spirit, there are far more people today in our society who have exactly the opposite view. That the body is it all that is important. And that sex, therefore, is just like eating. It's just another appetite. And you satisfy it by sexually meeting your needs and nothing more. But in the same passage, the Apostle Paul says, no, no. Even a casual or commercial relationship involves that deep intimacy of two people becoming one. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Do you know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. Therefore, sex, like fire, should be handled carefully in the place where God has planned it, only within the commitment of marriage and the shared love of a husband and wife. Handle with care, follow the maker's instructions. Now, you've got to get that foundation right before you understand what adultery is. Otherwise, it will make no sense. So, here's the second word. Joined, 
separated. When God joins two people together in marriage, he forms a bond that is more strong than the most powerful superglue. I can still remember when the first superglues came out and certain, uh, uh, certain uh, unruly teenagers used to stick them in all sorts of embarrassing places and people got stuck to them and couldn't, couldn't remove their parts of their anatomy that touched where the glue was. In fact, I believe they actually had to change the, uh, the strength and make it weaker because people were taken to hospital and it was a terrible job just to prise them apart and no matter what you did, your skin got torn. Now listen, that is sad. But I'll tell you something worse. When you tear apart what God has joined together in marriage, you will not do it without serious damage to both parties. Let me just briefly survey the damage. And I, as I prepared this, I thought I'd just get through this as quickly as possible. I shouldn't need me to tell you this. But if you look at the damage that is caused, the first and most obvious damage is seen in the lives of those most directly affected, that is husbands and wives. The idea of a pain-free separation is a myth. J. John and his book, which again is worth reading. Good to see one of our members buying one in the West the other day. This is what he says. Marriage is a whole web of links of intimate giving and sharing between a man and a woman. And with the act of adultery, all these bonds are severed. Adultery smashes the deepest and most intimate levels of trust, shatters the covenant promises, breaks down the walls of privacy and exclusivity that protect the heart of marriage. He said, it is in short an abomination. That damage obviously also extends to the wider family, to children and to grandchildren. More and more children growing up today experience the trauma of broken homes. And this affects not only them, but even family members. You find grandparents who no longer have access to their families because of the terrible things that happen when people are torn apart. And then the ripples spread apart and outwards to the wider family. Why do less and less people want to get married today? Well, because they say, would you, buy a, would you buy a car and drive it if you had a one in three chance of it breaking down and causing an accident? And so what do we do? We settle for casual relationships instead. And we say, I'm not going to commit to that. I'll just live with the person beforehand. And in those kind of relationships, you have twice as much chance, statistically, of your relationship breaking down than if you go into marriage. So now you're driving a car with a one and a half times a chance of whatever the statistics are of breaking down. And the widest damage is to society itself. No society in human history has survived long without the building block of the family as its basis. And then you begin to estimate the costs involved in this. One is the literal cost, financially. This involves not only the cost of divorce settlements and separating out property and homes, that has interesting implications elsewhere. You know, we need more and more houses and homes in our society today because more and more people, where one, two people live together in one home, they're now living two people in separate homes. There are physical costs. The rise, the increase in adultery and sexual promiscuity has led to a frightening spread of sexual diseases. And not just AIDS. I don't want to talk about it. You can read it in the press. But when you read it in the press, no one has the courage to say that it's largely caused, largely caused by promiscuity. And then there are scars that may not be physical effects. There are emotional scars that never heal. Adultery represents the deepest possible betrayal by someone you've trusted the most intimately and completely. And after that, it's very hard to trust anyone else. But the greatest and most damaging effect of all 
which you'll not find in any government reports, is the spiritual damage that adultery does to us. Last year, the police reported that around 100 swans in an area east of London had gone missing and may have been used for food by Eastern European immigrants. And there was a public outcry, not just because they were swans, after all, we eat ducks and geese, why not swans? But because swans are a protected species which under an ancient charter belongs to the Queen. Anyone killing or injuring a swan faces a £5,000 fine or six months in prison. In olden days, it was seven years' transportation. Maybe those responsible didn't realise how seriously they had offended against the Queen when they stole these swans and presumably ate them. And only when we understand that marriage is something that God has ordained and that the marriage of two people is something that God has brought together will we understand the serious consequences of separating what God has joined together. Which is why Jesus said, let no one separate those who have been joined together in the sight of God. Uh, King David learned this from bitter experience when he committed adultery. The story's there in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel. Um, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And when his sin was exposed by the prophet Nathan, who said, you're the man, and he confessed his sin against the Lord, if you read Psalm 51, and can I say, if this touches you on the quick and you're responsible and feel guilty before God, then you can do no better than go to Psalm 51 as a prayer of penitence. It's written from those circumstances. But notice what he said. He said, For I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you approve right when you speak, justified when you judge. Psalm 51, 3 and 4. And you might say, Hang on a minute, David. You sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against the husband, Uriah the Hittite. You sinned against your own people. Ah, yes, says David. But fundamentally, I sinned against God. And that is the most worrying and serious thing of all. And that is why he seeks restoration. He says, do not cast me from your presence. Take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Psalm 51, 11 and 12. Now, thankfully, let's move then from joined and separated to the word restored. And let me begin at this point by saying something as loudly and as clearly as I can, which will be on the screen, and it is this. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. How can I say so with such confidence? Only because Jesus said so to a woman caught in the very act of adultery and brought to him for judgment by the religious authorities. His response to them was, if any of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. And from the eldest to the youngest, they walked out until no one was left. And when they'd all gone, Jesus turned to the woman and said, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So, if you've committed adultery, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? He would say two things, and you need to hear them both. The first thing he would say is, No condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. He offers forgiveness for all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's sins, as the word of God, cleanses from all sin. A forgiveness that he would buy in his own blood when he died on the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin, including adultery. But he also says something else to this woman, which most people ignore. They say, look, Jesus didn't condemn that woman, so we shouldn't condemn anyone else. Quite right. But he also said... 
Not only no condemnation, he said, no more sinning. Leave your life of sin. Following Jesus means turning from your sin to God and with the help of the Holy Spirit heading in a new direction. Not a life of sin, but a life of righteousness. And the question is whether we're willing to break with that sin. Well, who knows this evening? Some of us may be living even now in an adulterous relationship with someone. And maybe you're sitting there squirming and thinking, I would just grab my little finger. And maybe you say, well, I'd like to be out of it, but I can't give it up. Unless you're prepared not only to receive God's forgiveness, but to head in a new direction, you'll never experience the help and power of His Holy Spirit. It's available to you. But it means a willingness on your part to leave your sin behind. Alistair Begg writes in his book on the Ten Commandments, Even adultery, as wrong and terrible as it is, is not the unforgivable sin. You are not trapped fatalistically in the clutches of sin. God's kindness points you to the door marked repentance. God's kindness points you to the door marked repentance. But you may ask, what about the broken marriage? Will God restore that? Many years ago, in the early years of my pastoral ministry, in another church, I sat in the front room one day of a luxury home. I sat there as a kind of referee, as a wife took all her belongings out of the house, as her husband sat and watched, and put them into a car in the car of her parents in the driveway. And she said, I am never coming back. I have had enough. Goodbye. And they drove off down the door, down the road, and I was left with the husband who broke down and wept. He wasn't a Christian. His wife was. Well, he was, she wasn't his wife at that point. But. And he'd been wrestling with following Christ. And he said to me, it's very interesting, he said, I'll follow Jesus now if you, if you promise us to bring her back. Interesting proposition. I'll follow Jesus if he brings her back. And I said to him, Bob, you cannot bargain with God. You follow him for who he is, not for anything else. I can't promise you that. She may never come back. The most important thing is that you get your relationship right with God. And some weeks later, he came to that point where in repentance, true repentance, he said to God, I come to you and give my life to Christ and whether, whether she comes back or not, I'll follow you. I can tell you the story because it has a happy ending. She did come back and I had the joy of marrying them. However, I cannot promise that to you as I couldn't promise it to them. It may happen, and if you're able to take steps to initiate it, you should always do that. Make every effort. But it may not be, for God will not force His will on unwilling people. You reap what you sow, and sometimes you cannot unscramble scrambled eggs. But what I can promise you, if you're in that situation, is the restoration of your broken relationship with God, which is far more important than any human relationship, even marriage. Maybe for the first time, maybe you're not a Christian, your life's in a mess. And at the heart of it is this whole issue of adultery and sexual immorality. And God offers you forgiveness in Christ. Maybe you're a Christian and you've gone completely off the road somewhere. And what you need is to get back and be restored like David was. 
It's no accident that one of the most common pictures the prophets use in the Old Testament to describe the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel towards God is that of spiritual adultery. You read Jeremiah, read the book of Hosea where he acted it out in his own marriage. And again and again the Lord sought to woo and win them back by his amazing love. And let me say one more thing before we move from this subject of restoration. If God's attitude is to welcome people back, it should surely be the attitude of his people in local churches. We are not to stand in judgment on other people. If they truly repent and come back to Christ, then we are to seek to encourage and restore them. Stuart Briscoe in his book writes, The remedial cure requires a repentant spirit, a loving saviour and a caring community and a caring community. I trust that we're that kind of community in this church. So, joined, separated, restored. And finally, because prevention is better than cure, protected. Sexual temptation is today, as it was in the ancient world, a serious problem and issue. So, if we're followers of Jesus, the first thing to say is, you need to be on your guard. Peter Lewis comments, God gives sex its high and proper place in human life and correspondingly warns of the seriousness of behaviour and attitudes which devalue, exploit or pervert human sexuality. In a society which trivialises and commonly degrades sex, the people of God need to be on their guard and to show a better and wiser way. So what steps can we take to protect and guard ourselves in this area? Let me suggest three which you'll find in the Bible. I don't have time to develop them in any great depth, but you can read them for yourself. The first is, guard your thoughts. Speaking on the subject of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus extended the scope of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, from the act to the thought, Matthew 5, 27, 28. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this doesn't mean that some people have stupidly said that if you're guilty of lust you may as well commit the act of adultery. That just compounds the crime. Rather it reminds us that the act of adultery begins with the thought of adultery. You don't just do it unless you're mad. You think about it beforehand, then you do it. So we need to be ruthless with what we see. So here's the second thing. Guard your eyes. Jesus went on to say, the next verse, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now he didn't mean this literally, but figuratively. He said, be ruthless with what you look at. With who you look at. That's a challenge that we need today as never before with the kind of things you can see on television and on the internet. If you're, in, if you're a young person and an older person, you shouldn't even need to tell you that with all the focus there is on the erotic. Job could say to God, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. And whether or not what we see progresses to the act, it will certainly affect our spiritual health. So here's the third and final step. Guard your heart. Alistair Begg in his book quotes our former pastor Derek Prime said don't let your heart follow your eyes the wise writer of the Proverbs counsels his son above all else guard your heart for it is the wellspring of your life Proverbs 4.23 and he concludes let your eyes look straight ahead 
fix your gaze directly before you, make level paths for your feet, take only ways that are firm, do not swerve to the right or left, keep your foot from evil. Your heart is a precious thing. By your heart I mean the whole person, who you are, your relationship with God. Guard your heart. What good advice from the writer of the Proverbs. What a pity that Solomon, if he was the author, didn't keep it. A heart filled with God's love is a heart that will not stray. See, in this whole area, the great problem is that the nearest thing to intimacy with God that we were made for is intimacy with another human being. That's why this is the biggest problem of all. You know, some people think if you have enough money, that will satisfy you. Only a fool thinks that. I mean, eventually you begin to realize possessions don't satisfy. Or fame, or your job, or whatever. In the end, people realize it's relationships that make us who we are. Because we're made in the image of God. Made for relationships. So, if we don't find a relationship with God, we think we'll find it in someone else. And I tell you, the best marriage partner in the world will never deeply satisfy you. Only God's love at the deepest level can satisfy you and when that's in place then all the other relationships fall into perspective whether you happen to be married or whether you happen to be single J. John concludes his chapter on the seventh commandment by saying the only way to resist temptation to infidelity is to root our single life or marriage in the rich soil of God's confirming love say it again the only way to resist temptation to infidelity is to root our single life or our marriage in the rich soil of God's confirming love. Now let me say something in conclusion and very briefly. Whoever you are, married or single, mature Christian or new disciple, there is no room for complacency in this area. Every one of us here is vulnerable. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, refers back to the history of Israel and the subject of sexual immorality. And he warns the Christians in Corinth against complacency. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you're sitting here this evening in Charlotte Chapel and saying, this will never be a problem for me. Think of those poor souls. Well, it may not be your greatest area of weakness, but be on your guard. Be careful. For many of us, maybe most of us, we're more vulnerable than we recognise. But he goes on to say where we began with those stories about actors and actresses, there is no room for fatalism. You know, I'm facing an irresistible sin. If you are a Christian, here is a promise from God's word, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So, when we are tempted, as we surely will be, let's make sure that like Joseph, we know where the exit sign is and we head for it. Fast. No matter what it costs you. Because you can gain the woman or man and lose your soul.